You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Pass. So I want to pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, uh, as we dive into your word this morning, God, I pray that you would come by the power of your spirit, speak to us through your word. Help us understand what it means to grow spiritually. Help us to desire to grow spiritually. Help us to desire you and to be in your presence. God, we just pray that you would come and be a life-giving source to us this morning. We beg you to act. We beg you to speak. We recognize and realize that without you, we can do nothing. So God, we ask you to speak. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen, amen. So I want to talk about spiritual growth a little bit uh, this morning as we dive into this text. And as I was thinking about spiritual growth, I was thinking that spiritual growth is, uh, is slow, right? Um, everybody agree with that? Spiritual growth can be super slow, can be super agonizing at times as we seek to grow. Um, sometimes uh, I was thinking that for me, spiritual growth kind of feels like maybe like stumbling around in the dark trying to find the light switch. Anybody else ever feel that way sometimes? When you're, you're like, God, would you please grow me up spiritually? And you feel like you're just kind of stumbling around, don't know where you're headed, don't know what step is next. Um, the reality about spiritual growth is, is that it's similar to any other discipline, especially in the Christian faith, in that most of it happens in the mundane places, behind the scenes. It's not, it's not, it's not typically super flashy. Um, happens alongside the roadside, right? Just the basic places of life, near, the nearly invisible places of life, which can be really hard, I think, for a culture that is really drawn to big and flashy with lots of like lights and smoke and excitement and entertainment. A spiritual growth almost, uh, almost feels somewhat contrary to that value or that desire inside of us because spiritual growth is all about what's happening on the inside of our hearts, right? It's all about what's happening deep inside that then affects the outside. We, as a culture, we're more about the externals, and we think that the externals will then shape the internals, but the reality is the, the Spirit of God does growth inside of our hearts, and that affects the external pieces and parts of our lives. It's about being shaped and molded into the image of Christ. It's about becoming more and more like Christ. And honestly, since, uh, like, for, for you and I, um, since, since our ability to grow spiritually has been purchased at a cross um, by Christ, then it really shouldn't surprise any of us that then the journey of spiritual growth as we make our progress down that road, that that journey should be filled at times with like simultaneous deep pain and extraordinary joy. Like as a culture, we, uh, we want more um, immediate gratification, right? We want things that will gratify my feelings immediately right now. But the reality of spiritual growth is it's slow, it's in the background, it's oftentimes painful, but it's also filled with lasting joy rather than momentary happiness. A statement, um, no pain, no gain. Everybody ever hear that? When I was younger, I was in taekwondo. It might surprise some of you to know. I was in Taekwondo and I was able to do high kicks and punches and things like that. And my instructor, Mr. Longoria, uh, would always say, Joey, no pain, no gain. And we'd get in the room and he'd kick the crap out of me, right? And I'm like, Ugh. walk out there like all curled up. 
Um, that was one of his big statements. No pain, no gain, as he's twisting your arm behind your back. Um, and I think that the, 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 like the pain that Jesus endured at the cross of Calvary, no pain, no gain, the pain that he endured at the cross of Calvary gains you and I the access and the acceptance that our hearts long for and deeply desire in the presence of our Father in heaven. See, the pain that Jesus endured for me gives me the opportunity to fall into the arms of my heavenly Father at the end of my road of sin. And then at the end of that road, as I fall into his arms, right, then this other painful journey begins. But that, that journey of becoming more and more like Christ, more and more like my Savior, is, is satisfying to my soul. Deeply satisfying to my soul. That's a picture of God's grace, right? The pain of our Savior helps us to gain the presence of our Father. It's a picture of God's grace. The pain of our Savior helps us to gain the presence of our Father. And then what our Father does then as we live in his presence because of the cross of Christ is that he molds us by the power of his Spirit, which he places inside of us, molds us by the power of that Spirit, who then helps us to grow up spiritually. See, God didn't save you and I to leave us like little children in our old immature patterns of life. When God saved you, if you claim Christ, then he saved you so that you can grow up in him and become more like him. That's the message of the scriptures all the way through. It's the message of Ephesians. It's the message of what we're going to look at here in just a few minutes. What this is is a picture of robust spiritual growth by grace that I think kicks the teeth out of this message that we hear in our culture of cheap grace that gives us a license to sin. The robust grace, true grace, produces spiritual growth. Cheap grace produces license to sin. I can do whatever I want because I'm saved by grace. That's cheap grace. That's false grace. That's a false gospel that Paul says in Galatians, if somebody comes and preaches this kind of gospel to you, let that person be anathematized, cut off, right? So this is a picture of true grace that then leads to spiritual growth. This is how Paul says it in Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. Look at this with me. Paul says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying, he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, 
and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This passage is, it's got spiritual growth written all over it so many different ways. The question that we often ask, the question that I hope that you would be asking this morning is like, how do I grow spiritually? What will it take for us to grow spiritually? How does a body of believers grow up spiritually? I think what we see in this passage is Paul has this grand vision. He has a grand picture of what it looks like to grow spiritually. I think the picture that he sees in his head is a family of Christians exercising their spiritual gifts as they help each other, help one another to grow in godliness and lead faithfully. I think that's the picture that Paul is painting for us. It's a family of believers who've been given gifts that are meant to help each other grow up spiritually. So when I think about our spiritual gifts, um, and that's really one of the, the big ideas, should be in red on your handout. Um, spiritual gifts are given to us to help the church grow, right? That's why spiritual gifts are given to us. But I think sometimes when we think about our spiritual gifts, we tend to think of them in a consumeristic sense rather than a contributive sense. And we tend to think of them as gifts that God has given to us for our own enjoyment or our own self-fulfillment. We tend to believe that the gifts we have are given to us to serve others for our own self-fulfillment. Ever see how that goes? Like, man, it just felt so good to serve people this morning. Like, that immediately should be a red flag to you that the way that you're serving is based more upon you than it is someone else. The problem with that view, problem with this view is that when our new toy, when my new toy of serving people with my gifts that I find out I have um, isn't fun anymore, doesn't fulfill me as much as it used to, I discard it for something newer and shinier. And when this happens in the church, then the church suffers, the name of Christ gets dragged through the mud again, right? The truth is, according to Scripture, is that God has given every one of us spiritual gifts for the good of other people and for the glory of God, not for our own sense of self-fulfillment or self-glory. Called to use our spiritual gifts to help others grow and to bring attention not to ourselves and not to the gifts we have, but to the giver of those gifts. Now, sideline, this is something you can't do if you're not part of a church, right? Like, you have to be a part of a church family to then use your gifts inside of a church family. This is what God designs. This was his design all throughout scriptures. But Paul didn't write this letter to people who were huddled up in their own caves by themselves, walking in isolation. He writes these to communities of people who are part of a local church family. That's, that's the way he's writing. So I think that's important for us to understand, too. We're called to use our spiritual gifts to help others grow and to bring attention to the giver of those gifts. And I think what happens is when we have this kind of biblical thinking in place, and then our hearts at that point are set free to follow Jesus and die to ourselves. And we're enabled at that point to exercise our gifts with wholehearted joy that isn't rooted in selfishness, but is instead 
rooted in the smiling face of our Father because of what Christ did at the cross. Rather than being rooted in, in how we are received or accepted by God's creation, other people, we're set free to serve the Creator in a joyful expectation of His name being made famous through us. See, every Christian has been given spiritual gifts to help the church grow. Every person in this room, every one of you and I, have a unique set of wiring been given to us by God. It's for the purpose of growing the body of Christ. Uh, church growth, um, and there's been many books written about it, right? Um, get a better marketing assistant. Um, make sure that you get it in your church in a building where it's on the main thoroughway, thoroughway through town. All sorts of church growth principles that have nothing to do with what the scriptures actually say. Now, they might be pragmatic and practical for the culture we live in, but the Bible doesn't give us those kinds of directions, right? So there's been a lot of church growth books written that have nothing to do with what the Bible says to begin with. Oftentimes, we think that church growth is then left to professional Christians, right? Christians who get the paycheck. Pastors, staff members, youth directors. They're the ones that should be growing the church, and then they're the ones who then work for customers, people that are sitting in the congregation. See how this American mindset has made its way into the church? Every person has different gifts, different passions, different experiences, different temperaments, different capacities. And that diversity that we see in the church is meant to work together as a body, as a family, to bring glory to God. And in the midst of that, what happens is we, we can begin to celebrate like the vast complexities and the diversity of God himself. So spiritual gifts are given to every believer so that they can become spiritual leaders who help the church to grow spiritually. And then there's two things, I think, in this passage that Paul kind of outlines for the Ephesian believers to know about spiritual gifts. Number one, a spiritual gifts have been given to us measurably. It's measurable. There is a measurement. In verse 7, Paul says that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Uh, the moment that you and I become followers of Christ, we become spiritually gifted. According to the measure of grace that Jesus in his authority gave to us. The gifts that we have, we don't have just because we're so cool. The gifts that we have, we have because Christ in his own authority, used a certain measure of his endless grace to gift us. So every one of us in the room who profess to be Christians have a part to play or a role to perform or a job to do in the family of God. No person has been saved by Jesus that was saved to sit on the sidelines. When God saved you, he didn't save you to just come into this personal relationship with Jesus whereby you get to just walk with him all by yourself. He saved you so that you can, as an individual, be in relationship with Jesus and a part of a community, a family. That's what the church is meant to be. You're not meant to sit on the sidelines. We were saved and as we were saved, we were simultaneously drafted into the army of God so that we can join forces with other Christians, rescue lost people from behind enemy lines, and then 
help each other to grow up spiritually. That's, that's what happens when you and I get saved and begin to follow Christ. And again, no, no one is the same, right? But everyone is gifted. Everyone is valuable. Everyone is needed in the army of the Lord, in the family of Jesus. Paul explains it this way in Romans 12. It might be on the screen for you. It should be Romans 12, 3 through 8. He says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. And individually, catch all that? All part of a body individually. So the problem sometimes when we read these Bibles, we think, it's all about me and what Jesus is saying to me. And there's truth there because it needs to start there. I think the, the other ditch we fall into is, well, that's what the Bible says about my wife. Man, she needs to straighten up. Have you ever make that mistake? Like, I would never make that mistake. I don't know where she's at, but she'd kill me if I said, uh, dude, I've made that mistake. That's how I know. And I've heard other people that make that mistake too. Don't get me wrong, the Bible does speak to you at times, and God speaks to you and says, hey, you need to go talk to a brother or a sister about this. But it needs to begin with you and I in the presence of God, hearing from God in the scriptures, and then that affects the community that we're part of. Back to this passage in Romans, we are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. We belong to each other. Members of one another belong to each other. See, when, when you belong to a family, the stakes get raised right? Um, when you're not part of a family, if you're an orphan, think about that. There's a massive difference. But when you're part of a family, the stakes get raised. There's a commitment that you make to one another, members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches and is teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The spiritual gifts have been given to us measurably. And the measuring cup, according to Ephesians, is the grace of Jesus, according to the authority of Jesus. See, Jesus doesn't give every gift to every person, but he does give gifts to every person. Tracking? He doesn't give every gift to every person, but he does give gifts to every person. Some people are gifted to communicate the truth boldly. Some people are gifted to teach or encourage others or invest generously or lead with energy or extend mercy to the broken. Now, can you imagine, think about this, try to imagine this with me. Can you imagine what it would be like to be in a church family where somebody thought they were God's gift of everything? <coughs> Wouldn't be any fun, would it? you imagine being in a church where people didn't think that they were gifted at all, where they thought they were just spectators going to a football game and they got to watch and not participate, where it was just all about receiving, right? Not contributing, but instead just receiving, consuming, because that's what we do very well. The Bible doesn't communicate the body of Christ, church membership, church attendance as something that you and I get to just come and consume without also making our own contribution. We are gifts to one another. This is the way the church grows. 
The problem in the American church is we have turned, I say we, me too, we have turned it into a spectator sport rather than a team that everybody should play on and a family that everybody is a part of. And I think we need to repent of that in the church today. And that starts from the pulpit, right? Pastors in pulpits need to own this. And then we need to lead out. And then church families need to get together and cling to Jesus together as we serve one another, serve our community, and bring glory to our Father in heaven. Can you imagine the gift of teaching sitting on the sidelines, on the bench? Can you imagine the encourager refusing to encourage people? Can you imagine the investor keeping his investments to himself, pouting in the corner maybe? Can you imagine someone being gifted in encouragement, but instead maybe despising that gift and longing to be a teacher instead? Can you imagine how anemic Can you imagine how immature? Can you imagine how sick? Can you imagine how divided a church family might be if these things were reality? The the reason that churches today go into worship wars about what music is more important than the next is because we're selfish. And we forget that God has given us gifts and we are gifts to one another. We begin to think that the church merely exists for our own consumption rather than our participation. The truth according to this text that we're studying, and the truth I think according to Romans also, is that the church was not designed where we all just become shareholders and customers and consumers. It was designed for us to be spiritually gifted leaders, full, the church family, full of spiritually gifted leaders who think soberly, right, according to Romans, and put others first and work hard to utilize our gifts for the spiritual growth of the church. Every one of us has been given a certain measure of spiritual gifts for the growth of the church body. That's number one. Now, number two according to Ephesians, is that spiritual gifts have been given to us and our enemies have been removed. Spiritual gifts have been given to us and our enemies have been removed. According to verses 8 through 10, Paul says that when he, meaning Jesus, okay, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And this line that Paul uses here is from Psalm 68, 18. I'm not going to go there, but you can just reference that. And he uses that line to paint this picture of Christ as a victorious, warring king, okay? It's a king who went to war. This is why there is this parenthetical statement in your Bibles. Most Bibles show it parenthetically. What Paul's doing in parentheses is he's explaining why he used this line from Psalm 68. He says it this way. He says, ah, insane, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he had also descended, right? Point being, Christ couldn't have ascended if he hadn't first descended. Into the lower regions, the earth. Now stop there for just a second. Some theologians take this so far out of context and abuse what's there and claim that Jesus somehow died on the cross, was separated from his father, and went to hell. Um, This passage doesn't say that. You can go back to the original Greek and look at it. It simply says he descended to the lower regions, the earth, and then ascended back to heaven. 
Now, the idea that Jesus would go to hell uh, would implicate that when on the cross he says, it is finished, that it really wasn't finished. Right? Follow me? Like, it's either finished when he says it's finished or it's not finished, one of the two. And if it was finished there, he had no reason to go to hell. He had already paid the price for our sin, laid in the grave for three days, rose victoriously, right? That's the picture that Paul is painting. And he says, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. This is the picture of Christ reigning as our victorious king. Let me ask you, is Jesus your victorious king or is he just your personal play buddy? Is Jesus your victorious king who reigns and rules over your life? Or is he just the thing that you engage in once or twice a week? Do you have a vital, life-giving relationship with Jesus whereby in your heart you know that he came to earth and then went back to heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father and is coming back for you someday because he loves you that much. He gave himself that way. And that is then driving you to a place where you say, man, I need you, Jesus. I can't exist without you. And that drives your relationship with him on a daily basis. Are you there? Is that your victorious king? Is that the Jesus you serve? Or is he more of the American Jesus with the blonde hair and the blue eyes that gives you everything you want? Because that's the American version of Jesus, and that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Picture that we see is a king descending from his throne, right? Comes down off his throne. He he goes out and makes war against the enemies of his kingdom. And as he's making war, he beats them soundly and then comes back with captives and gifts. And this is what Jesus has done for us. He descended from heaven, went to war on our behalf. The way he went to war was by giving his life as a sacrifice and a ransom for many so that many would have the opportunity to come and follow him and be saved and changed. He took Satan, sin, and death captive. That's your enemies. Look at the person across the table from you. Think about the church across the street Think about your husband or your wife or your friend or whatever it is. They're not your enemies. Paul will go on later to say this in Ephesians 6 even, saying our battle's not against one another. It's actually against spiritual forces, right? Our enemies are Satan, sin, and death, and Jesus took them captive at the cross of Calvary. He took those away. He removed them so that you and I no longer have to be in slavery to them, and as he took those, he then gave us something too. And he gave us gifts. I have a picture of someone coming into like my broken down old home. If I had a broken down old home, it is kind of broken down and old. Like this broken down old home that's eating me alive. And sometimes my house does eat me alive. I don't know if some of you understand that and get that too when you have a water heater that goes out the day before your daughter's gonna get married. Some of you might remember that. That was crazy, right? Or, or, or a branch falls on your roof um, or the front door just never wants to shut or open properly. So you, you, can, you can tell um, some of these experiences are personal. You like somebody coming into that old broken down house though, right? Just come in and say, you know what? I'm going to take this thing that you're drowning under. I'm going to take it away from you, and I'm going to give you a brand new house. And on top of giving you a brand new house, I'm going to give you all the resources you could ever need to maintain it. How stupid would it be for me to go, nah, 
kind of life where I'm at. I kind of like living under the power of Satan. It's, it's kind of fun for me, right? It's stupid, right? It would be, it'd be, oh, it'd be dumb. It wouldn't be good. Live under the power of sin. Say, nah, I kind of, I kind of like wallowing in my sin over here, even though I've been, I've been thinking maybe I should get yeah, it, but I kind of like that much better than the beauty of the presence of Jesus, whereby I could grow spiritually and help others grow spiritually. I like that better. Satan, sin, death. Oh, death smells good. I'm going there. Said nobody ever, right? It's just that we forget that what sin does to us tastes so good and it creates a deeper hunger for more of it. And then we live our lives in graves with the bottom kicked out, right? It's called a banquet in the grave. We keep feasting on that sin because it tastes so good. It's it's like this analogy of my health. My blood pressure has been jacked up um, and I need to change my diet. Here's the problem. I like steak with seasoning and I like my burgers greasy, okay? And to think about eating a salad with not much salad dressing on it sounds gross. The reality is I have, I have, an appetite for what has tasted good all these years, but what has tasted good all these years is actually killing me. So it's not that we just necessarily go actively in our mind saying, man, I choose Satan, I choose sin, I choose the stench of death, I choose a banquet in the grave. The reality is we're just stuck there, but Jesus came to be victorious over Satan, sin, and the grave. He took that They no longer have power over you and I. That's the message of the gospel. That's what wins us to getting up out of those graves and walking away because God gives us his spirit and enables us to walk that way. Jesus, do you want that? Because let me tell you this, the only reason that people in the church today would decide not to serve or disqualify themselves from serving is because they have a taste for Satan's sin in the grave more than Jesus' holiness and life. Our appetites need to change. The gospel does. Changes our appetite. Creates spiritual growth. That's what spiritual growth is. It's a change of appetite. So that's points one and point two, right? In conclusion, I think my conclusion is fairly short. In conclusion, what I I wanted to do is I wanted to try hard to make some practical application out of what we've been learning about what I just spit all over you guys because I could see my spit flying. Sorry for Andrew and this young lady in the front row because she got re-baptized. Baptize and pastor spit. Okay, let's move on. So um, I want to make some practical application, practical application to us. Um, application is a funny thing, though, okay? When you think about application, it's kind of a funny thing to think about because what, uh, what application is, is, is it involves doing. Application always involves doing. And it's really easy, I think, for a pastor to stand up front and just kind of beat the ever-living son out of us and then go, now go do three things and you'll be saved. I mean, at least by, by, by way of implication, okay? Like, 
here's all the things we're doing wrong, and here's the gospel of Jesus, and we could be better if we do this, so therefore go do that, and God will just be much more pleased with you. I don't want us to hear that. Um, so to resist that. Um, it does have to do with doing, but it also has to do with believing. The application is about truths that we need to believe and truths that we need to obey. Some people are just real steeped on believing and understanding and knowledge, like, oh, I know this about Jesus. I know that about God. I know this about my church. I know that about this Bible passage. But the problem with that is that what we're forgetting is we're forgetting the application is not based on what you know. It's based on who you know, okay? It's not based on what you know. It's based on who you know. All of us know this to be intrinsically true, right? We'll tell people all the time, like, like you tell me all about your love for me. Um, I'm not gonna believe it until you do it. And I really don't care what you know. I care about how well you love me, right? It's the same with Jesus. Do you know Jesus and are you actively living a life that loves him because he loved you first? That's the question. That's really the question. Application isn't based on what you know, it's based on whom you know. We're called to know Jesus first and then serve Jesus second. Get that backwards? Start serving God first and trying to know him second. The best thing for you to do at that point is just reset. Reset, drop everything, let me get to know Jesus. Almost like get saved again, even though I don't really believe that that can happen, because I don't believe you get saved once. Like, it seems pretty crazy, and according to Hebrews, I just don't think it's possible for you to get saved multiple times. Um, you can recommit your life to the Lord, sure. I just think it's like, sometimes it's just time to reset. When you realize you've been living your life that long, like backwards, just stop, hold the boat, reset a little bit for the purpose of growing spiritually, right? Now think about flight attendants. Let's put it this way. Flight attendants, um, when you're on a flight going somewhere, flight attendants will tell you, like, if we start to go down, we start to crash, get to the oxygen mask and put it on yourself first. Don't put it on Will first. Put it on yourself and then put it on Will. Now, it seems really selfish, like, but I want to save Will. Yeah, but listen, if you don't have some oxygen, you're going to die and you'll be no help to Will. Period. The same in the Christian faith. You and I have got to put oxygen masks on ourselves and actively put oxygen masks on each other in the gospel. So with that picture in mind, knowing that God has given us gifts, every one of us, and he's also removed our enemies, three things, fill in the blanks, spend time with Jesus daily, spend time with Jesus' people weekly, and spend time with people that Jesus wants to save on a monthly basis. Let me run through these. Spend time with Jesus daily. This is the discipline of putting the oxygen mask on yourself first. You have got to be getting into God's word daily, praying daily, seeking silence and solitude daily, and literally being in the presence of Jesus. Got to. Actively remove every excuse, every hindrance, every sin that seeks to stop you from that daily nourishment. Hebrews 12, 1 through 4 says it this way. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners, like you and I, such hostility against himself. Can you imagine how hostile we've been against Jesus, but he has loved us so much so that you may not grow weary. Consider him who went through this so that you and I may not grow weary or faint-hearted, tired of walking out holiness and spiritual growth, right? 
Consider him so that you and I may not grow weary. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. So consider and seek the presence of Jesus daily. The presence of Jesus is the only life-giving source that you and I have. You and I will die without it. Number two, spend time with Jesus' people weekly. This is the discipline of putting oxygen masks on each other. Most of us struggle, I think, to put on our own oxygen masks regularly. If there's, if there's one of us in this room that says, nah, I don't struggle with spending time with Jesus on a daily basis, I'd just call you a liar right here. Because we do, at times, struggle. You may be better at it now than you were 10 years ago. But we struggle in that. It's tough to put our own oxygen masks on, okay? And that's okay. We're human. The hope is that we grow in this. Most of us struggle in that. And what we need is we need people around us to help us put that oxygen mask on. What I'm not talking about here is I'm not talking about mere friendship groups either. So you need to dissect the two. We're not talking about friendship groups that enjoy playing golf or eating at Applebee's, watching football games, or going to movies together. Those things are good. Those are fine. Do those. Do it more. Okay? Awesome. Those things are important. But those are not the kind of gatherings I'm talking about, and those are not the kind of gatherings the scriptures talk about either in Hebrews. What I'm talking about is sitting down, actually opening the Bible together with other believers, sharing our struggles together, challenging one another with the truths of God's word, and then praying for each other. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, often quoted passage, says that we are to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're called to spend time with Jesus' people regularly. And then lastly, spend time with people that Jesus wants to save regularly as well. I, I say monthly because these are just rhythms that I try to follow. I think the weekly rhythms, the daily rhythms of spending time with Jesus, very biblical. I think you can find that. I think the weekly rhythms being with God's people in large group gatherings and small group gatherings, I think you can argue that from Acts 2 and Acts chapter 4 real easily uh, because it seems to be the rhythm. Um, so I think we probably ought to follow the same thing. As far as spending time with the um, people that Jesus wants to save, I think for some of us, we just need to set a, uh, a goal. Like on a monthly basis, I'm going to sit down with somebody who doesn't know you. And it may be more than that. That'd be awesome if we did more than that. Honestly, you're already around people that don't know Jesus a whole bunch in your jobs and your vocations. Um, you probably spend more time around lost people than you do Christian people in reality. And so it'd probably be good for us to just take those really low-hanging experiences and put them to use. The reality is, is that the scriptures tell us that we are to go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Matthew 28, right? So we're called to spend time with people that Jesus is trying to reach. So those, I think you put yourself in those three places, spending time with Jesus, Jesus' people, and people Jesus is trying to save. Let your gifts be used. I think you will continue to grow. The question is, are you growing spiritually? The question is, are you clinging to the enemies that Christ has removed? question is, are you using your gifts for the good of others and for God's glory? Those are the questions. I'll leave you with that. Let me close this in prayer. Father, pray, God, that you would produce this kind of fruit in us, that you would grow us spiritually, that you would help us to love you well. Pray, Father, that you would, uh, that you would take this message. I, I feel like there's a, a ton here. I pray, Father, that you would just kind of illuminate and pull out um, the things that need to be applied to each of us individually and then cause growth inside of us as a church family. Lord, we trust you to do that work. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Hey, one of the things that... 
You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. 